You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. What has left the daughter? Marla's today is March 27, 1967, your 21st birthday. I'm writing because I refuse any longer to have my life defined by what I haven't told you. I've waited until now to relate the terrible incident that I took part in on October 16, 1942, when I was 19. Your mother, Tilda Hillier, frequently consulted the Highland Book of Platitudes, which had 411 pages. She had it practically memorized. She found instruction and solace in that book, even the solution to certain puzzles about life, but I thought all those platitudes put together avoided the fact that life is unpredictable. For instance, after moving hotel to hotel here in Halifax for many years, I finally returned to my childhood house at 58 Roby Street, which I never thought I'd set foot in again. In fact, it's now 3 a.m., I scarcely sleep anyway, and I'm writing at my kitchen table. Two Sundays ago, I stopped in at Harbor Methodist Church. On occasion, I do that more out of nostalgia than present faith, to say the least. Anyway, when I entered the church, Reverend Lundrigan was recounting some ancient parable or other in which an elderly woman listens to her son hold forth about how much heartbreak, sour luck, and spiritual depletion can be packed into a life. But talk as he might, the man from the parable fails to address the one thing his mother is most curious about. What of your daughter, she asks. Have you seen her? How is her life? Do not doubt that wonderment may be found when you find her again. Turns out, the man hasn't seen his own daughter in ages. Rain, wind, hunger, thirst, joy, and sorrow have visited her all along, the woman says, yet her father has not. She listens more, all the while experiencing a deeper and deeper sadness, until finally she says, And what is left the daughter? She doesn't mean heirloom objects. She doesn't mean money. She doesn't care about anything like those. She says, I think you have a secret untold that keeps a distance between you and her and the life you were given. Well, Marlis, you know how people talked in biblical times. Still, when I left the church, I thought, strange, how you can't predict during which happenstance you might take something to heart. And right then and there, I understood that all I had to leave you, really, is what I'm writing here. I've read some of the English poet John Keats, and he said something to the effect that memory shouldn't be confused with knowledge. Of course, I have no way of knowing if, after you've read a paragraph or two, any curiosity you might have had will abruptly sour to disgust or worse. Yet I hope you'll see these pages through, and that whatever else you may think, whatever judgments you come to, please at least accept the knowledge that I've always loved you, without cease. Howard Norman is a three-time winner of National Endowments for the Arts Fellowships and a winner of the Lannan Award for Fiction. He's the author of novels that include The Northern Lights and The Bird Artist, both nominated for National Book Awards, The Haunting of Elle, The Museum Garden Devotion, short story collections that include Kiss in the Hotel, The Girl Who Dreamed Only Geese, and Between Heaven and Earth, and nonfiction that includes My Famous Evening and In Fond Remembrance of Me. His new novel is What is Left the Daughter. Thank you for joining me, Howard. My pleasure.
Howard, at the very beginning of this book, we meet Wyatt Hillier, who's a narrator who is defined by a negative space, in a sense, by what he hasn't told his daughter. Yes, exactly. I've been long fascinated with writing an epistolary novel. I like epistolary novels. I like uh, dangerous liaisons. I like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Natalia Ginsburg's The City and the House, any number of examples, uh, The Color Purple. And uh, I'd wanted to write from the beginning uh, an epistolary novel. This is just an epistolary novel that's consisting of one letter. And um, he does... He's a man in extremis. He uh, has so kept something under the lid, as they say in Nova Scotia, that finally he can't wait anymore, and he needs to tell his daughter, long-lost, long-departed daughter, um, long-absent daughter. So she's developed in absentia in the novel, and he just wants to get back together with her, wants to see her again. So he's writing this because he feels it's his only chance to see her. The the prose voice, the, the narrative, the, the voice uh, of Wyatt Hillier in this novel is absolutely fascinating. It's one of, I think, the best-crafted prose voices I've almost ever read. It's extremely controlled and formal. Talk about getting inside the mind of this man, and how hard was it to get in, and how hard was it to get out? Very difficult questions. In all honesty, I think in the past, sometimes uh, people who've responded to my books have wondered about the, the passive male narrator. And you see, I've always been puzzled by that because I think to tell something for, uh, to think narratively and to tell something for two or three hundred pages is not a passive act, even though you may within that be uh, describing your, your passiveness. To, to tell it is not passive. So that's a paradox, I think. Uh, but why it is not different from any character I've ever written, which is to say you uh, need to intensify your sense of vicariousness when writing a character. You just become that person, especially first person. Um, and you have to have a longing to get out of your own self that's in equal measure to the desire to stay in somebody else's head, if you will. So that's what happened here. Um, you also have to keep their company. You know, you, you, you want to make your characters interesting because you have to live with them for several years. They're your social life, if you will. Oh, that's a really interesting observation. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you... you, you, you you know, you you want you need to wonder what they're going, what aspects of their natures are going to be featured, and how featuring those will will engender certain kinds of behavior toward each other. That's really interesting. I, you know, one of the things that that I like about this novel is the way that we experience these characters is so uh, filtered and kind of damped down. It's like looking at the world, in a sense, almost through, through sunglasses. But one of the things we really sense is that there's a, a generosity towards all of these people. 
that you, I think, as an author, must really love all these people, although many of them are not necessarily lovable people. No, I, I mean, <clears throat> sympathy and empathy, the operative words of the day, seem to apply to some extent um, when you're writing characters. Um, I, I, I think the idea is to uh, restrain yourself from judgment. Uh, that seems to me to be not only pretentious, but a misguided enterprise to try to pass judgment or, or, or construct a, a character's life in order to judge them. So I'm not sure if it's a matter of liking or disliking. I think it's a matter of seeing their reactions to each other, mainly. The sociology of their existence, especially in these small towns that I like to write about, in Nova Scotia. Now, uh, you mentioned Nova Scotia here, and, and let's talk about uh, the setting. Um, in, I think it was uh, my famous evening, you described Halifax as the perfect setting for a noir. Well, <laughs> it seems like you, know, you finally I, got I, your chance. I wonder uh, if I might um, attend to that image of sunglasses. That's compelling to me. Because I could immediately see that as euphemistic for melancholy, for a kind of uh, uh, filtering, as you said, or, or a, not darkening so much, but, but a different light. And, um, and, and I've sometimes wondered, this, this is going to sound, I think, like quite a leap, but I'm partly colorblind. And I have trouble with uh, different kinds of browns and grays and so forth. And I've always wondered if there isn't some desire to uh, describe uh, landscape, describe tableaus, describe uh, places and people in a way that makes up for one's own lack in, say, perception. For instance, Vuillard is one of my favorite painters. But I know when I go to the Phillips collection in Washington and look at some of the Vuillards, whose descriptions I've read. I know I'm not seeing the painting that Vuillard painted or that you would see. So in my mind, I have to make up, and I often look at these characters and think, I'll just make up what they're dressed in and the colors they have. And I think sometimes writing is compensatory. It, 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 it creates a world in which uh, that is more full than the world you're actually living in. Well, you know, one thing about this novel that struck me is that you read often uh, novels of crime fiction are sometimes described as the characters are either black and white or, you know, the better, the better novels are described as, you know, filled with gray areas. And, and I think that what you've done in this novel is to create the emotional equivalent uh, of these very gray and complicated crime novels uh, without necessarily the veneer of the crime, although this novel does involve some crime. And, and I, I love that kind of emotional complexity, even though it's all seen through, I think, the very placid surface uh, of uh, Wyatt's Mm -hmm. uh, perceptions. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you referred to the word noir before, and I think if in the classic sense or definition, 
it would be an atmosphere that mm-hmm. engenders a kind of anxiety. And, and, and that, of course, is what noir did and does in film and cinema. And I tried to do it a little bit in, in writing. Oh, well, this is, <laughs> you know, I, I hadn't uh, twigged to that perception of this, but this is a novel, um, I think, that has a, a inc- it's incredibly filled with anxiety. And I, and I think it also, this is, you, you have a really unique, I don't think I've ever encountered another writer who has the same sense of narrative pull that you do. This is very much a page-turning novel. You can really read it and you can't put it down. Uh, and it's like, and it, you mentioned anxiety, it's like you're sitting on the edge of a precipice, the entire novel waiting to fall in. Yes. I mean, I like to start, well, there's a, a Chinese proverb I quite like. If you open up enough doors, eventually a tiger will leap out. And, <laughs> and I, I, I like to put a, a, at least one of my characters in that place, that they seem to be trying to find something, whether it's love, whether it's a way to get out of their circumstance, whether it's a way to access their deepest passions. And and they keep trying, they keep opening these doors and opening these doors, and eventually, metaphorically, but also quite literally, a tiger leaps out. And then uh, there's a certain momentum to their life, a change in direction that is irreversible. So uh, in this book, of course, the intensifying element of everyone's agitation is the news of the Second World War coming in through the radio. So the radio itself becomes uh, a, um, a messenger. It's like the, the, it's like a mirror through which the rest of the world, it's another surface, I, I think. Well, this is pre-television, of course. Sure. Largely set in pre-television. I, um, when I spoke to Scott Simon on NPR, I, I told him the story that when I asked my mother uh, what it was like to see television, she said, Jack Benny looked better on the radio. And I thought, well, of course you have to imagine and so, you know, uh, these war reporters had to describe things in a way, in a, in a pointillist way that would let people envision or, or have a, an image in their mind of what was going on because they couldn't see this war on television. Well, you know, the, the aspects of the Second World War that you talk about are really fascinating and I think much uh, underreported in, in our general knowledge of World War II and I think also this sensibility that you evoke in Nova Scotia during this time is, I think, extremely relevant to what's happening around us everywhere right oh, yes. now. So talk about the sure. backra- background. Well, you mentioned crime in this novel. The central crime, uh, the central incident, one might say. See, if... You sometimes ask authors what their book is about, and it will be different. Their answer will be different than what a reviewer or a reader will say. Not at odds with, but simply different, because they've been trying to construct the emotional dimensions of their book. They've been trying to symphonically 
construct a story with many parts and so on and so forth. So if I were to be asked what my book is about, I would say it's about what most of my books are about, which are the world's most difficult courtships, and that it, this is essentially a story of love during war and the impossibility of it. But chronologically, and in a sense of writing a kind of opera, the main incident is the sinking of a ferry, the Caribou Ferry, which is journalistically accurate, in October of 1942, by the U-boat, the German U-boat, the Laughing Cow, off the coast of uh, Newfoundland. And the repercussions and reverberations of that particular sinking were uh, astonishing. And uh, listening to reports, listening to uh, uh, radio broadcasts, reading the papers, reading church bulletins, uh, the response in the theosophical world to this sinking. All of that played a part in this book. You know, one of the things I think that I just loved was that you put us so much in Wyatt's mind. And one of the things that, that is very interesting is this idea of the collaborators. Mm-hmm. And um, once that seed is planted in the community and in the reader's mind, it, it colors everything we see. Oh, it's yeah. yet another filter. And Absolutely. we have that right now. We never yes. know. I, I didn't inspire a terrorist. Right. I didn't, I didn't quite. I, I, was ad- I was addressing your question before a little bit by indirection, but more directly. Yes. After September 11th, mm. that, that we, that we, which we refer to that date as September 11th, mm-hmm. um, and it occurred to me at one point, quite an obvious thing, that deep griefs happens every September 11th on some level to somebody in the world. They may remember September 11th for the loss of a parent or the loss of a child or the announcement of an illness or something else. But uh, the unifying element in our nation was the attack on the Twin Towers. Right after that, as you know, there were a lot of race crimes. And I was especially thinking of those North African fellows that were attacked out in Portland, Oregon. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. I thought, wrong time, wrong place. And so when I have a German philology student who is... Uh, whose mother is Jewish, who is courting a young woman uh, whose own mother dies on this caribou ferry, he's in the wrong place at the wrong time. And uh, that is, of course, a historical corollary. You know, one of the things that I think is really uh, beautiful about this book is we read it on one very immediate level. It's a first-person letter, and it just flows, and there's a lot of anxiety and tension that takes us through to the final page. In retrospect, though, um, as readers, when we uh, relive the reading experience, because this is a kind of a a reading experience that um, is analogous almost to memory, where mm-hmm. books that are written like this, the reading experience and the memory experience, I don't think there's that much of a difference. And I mean, I hope not. And, and um, as we go back over this, the structure of the book is really, really beautiful and 
finally, I mean, it, we understand um, in retrospect that the totality of the book gives us a map for how the how the book is yes, put together. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, you're you're referring to something that is seldom really talked about. I think because it's hard to describe it, and that is the process of writing. And I can only speak for myself is discovering what the structure of a book is. The question is not discovering, it's recognizing it when it starts to reveal itself. You have intuitive ways of writing. You recognize what you're doing, certain refrains, certain themes, certain voices, and then you have to grab onto those and formalize them in the rewrite again and again and again. So these are very tightly written novels, this one especially. So structure is really, um, was the most challenging thing. The most challenging things are often the most rewarding when they work. When they don't work, they're the most vexing. I, you know, this, uh, books like this too remind me of a piece of furniture <laughs> in that they seem really finely carved once, <clears throat> carved again, lacquered once, lacquered again, layered and reworked and reworked till what we see looks might look fairly simple and straightforward but well, what it is well I, I can i can i can uh, i can be definitely 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 grateful for that analogy if i could add something to it though i would say that as long as that chair inside the lining has the family bible hidden in it in which some cranky uncle has written marginalia about the book of Job complaining or something like that. In other words, at the heart of it, no matter how formally constructed, there has to be a fundamental dramatic or eccentric or uncanny aspect to it. Or else, for me, um, the formal structure would not be enough. No, no. And that brings up another point about this book, which is I think this is a very... A sneaky book because you can read this book and you just whiz through it and you think of oh, this is you know we see a, a series of events you know he said this is what happens but what we as readers don't I think even necessarily realize that we're experiencing not just the events but increasingly powerful emotional responses to those events. When you drop a a stone into the water here, there's one little dot. Out here, there's a pretty big ripple. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I'm interested in, always in writing, is the moment in which somebody, a character, or more than one character, who has had some aspect of their nature, always fully resident. Given the right circumstances, that aspect of their nature gets featured. And it could be love, it could be passion, it could be violence, it could be anger, it could be confusion. That's the stone dropped into the water. Well, for Donald, it's the war. His uncle, who makes... uh, uh, Wyatt's uncle, who makes sleds and toboggans, uh, 
when we enter this story, he is already a man in extremis. The war and the war announcements and the war bulletins have gotten to him. He's become a veritable (laughs) archivist of uh, the sinkings of all these ferries. His work shed is, for instance, uh, lined with uh, headlines about these ferry sinkings, and he's become a kind of autodidact of World War II catastrophes. And uh, so what I had tried to do there is make radio static sort of part of his mental landscape, as if he's going a little crazy. And of course, he participates in this ghastly event and owns up to it. Uh, There is no um, disclaimer. There's no dissembling. He's very Nova Scotian. He says things directly. I did it. This is what happened. And I expect uh, you to take, to honor the truth of things in the way it should be honored. And in this case, putting him in jail. It's so wonderful because we actually get to see that he doesn't, uh, we we expect this of him. I mean, and, and it's really nice to, to see our own perceptions of the characters kind of play out. And this is a interesting way that you reward the reader. You give us some clues as to what's going to happen, and there's things we just can't even foresee. Uh, talk about using that, and we have your character himself says, life is unpredictable. Yes, um, I don't really enjoy stories or novels that that one of the organizing principles is coincidence or uh, willful synchronicity. I, I'm not really interested in that, although I love to read Borges. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's a master, and so no one can touch that stuff. So for me... Uh, these stories, the narrative uh, of them has to have some kind of headlong, tumbling quality. Things need to be set in motion and really cannot stop, cannot help themselves. The story can't help itself from continuing. And if I can maintain that, uh, uh, then I'm relatively pleased. Now, um, I'd like you to talk about, you know, creating that historical uh, time and place. It's very different from where we are now. Um, how did you come to inhabit that? Uh, talk about your research sure. and, and picking up the language. Sure. Well, the larger context is, of course, I have been going to Nova Scotia, living in Nova Scotia for extended periods of time uh, for 40 years now. So there's always a sense, at least there's a sense to me, of each new book both being new, but uh, I don't know how you would say it, perhaps containing something of the cumulative effect of all those visits. That's more the emotional and subjective part. This book, I would... uh, suggest is the most um, journalistic of the books I've written. That is to say, there are so many elements of it which came from archives and came from um, chronicles. 
However, my habit is to stop uh, researching when what I find out as facts starts to trespass on what I imagined might have happened. So you have to calibrate that perfectly. I'm not an historical novelist in that way. I'm not interested in recapitulating what's already in the public domain. Otherwise, I would write nonfiction, which I do as well. But in this case, I thought a a novel would serve a better purpose. Um, You know, and, and, and people will call you on the table about quite regularly about facts <laughs> yes. and about uh, things like that. So the train spotters. <laughs> I feel if you if you are going to use incidents, get them right, but never, never rationalize or make an excuse or apologize for the things you made up. What the goal is verisimilitude, a sense of what it was like. And if that takes finessing, if that takes uh for instance, I'll give you an example, if you don't mind. It would be about professional mourners. Now, Tilda Hillier becomes a professional mourner, the young woman that Wyatt, his adopted first cousin, falls in love with. And I really researched professional mourners in the Maritimes. I talked to two or three who were very elderly who were professional mourners. I read everything I could about it. I discovered some really, really unusual things. The more uh, outlandish elements um, would have been simply uh, opportunistic to include. Mm. They would have just been um, dramatic set pieces. But there were certain kinds of things that, that each of the accounts I read, each of the autobiographies, even if they were a page long, each of the people I talked to had in common. And that's what I tried to incorporate here in Tilda's desire and the actual utilitarian possibility of having employment. I like to employ my characters. I like to have them doing things and earning a living. I think that's that's an interesting uh, observation because I, for me... And, and I think for many readers, it's frustrating to read books where people don't have jobs that you know, don't have to earn a living. And that's something that makes this book particularly poignant because the characters do have to do that. And that gives us some kind of commonality between the reader and, and the character. So it allows yeah. us to, for at least me, to immerse myself more fully in in the narrative. I, I began this book well I shouldn't say I began it but when it first started uh, when it first started to uh, uh, form as an idea I really wanted to write a book about a professional mourner just entirely and uh, it 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 changed to put it simply but professions uh, museum guards uh, professional mourners why it becomes a detritus gaffer at the end. He, he takes things up out of the water in Halifax Harbor. These are real jobs. Uh, so in that sense, there's not that much made up. It's how you coordinate it mm. in a book or, well, or how you organize all these varied lives. It's fascinating the, the, the way that uh, you 
write a, a novel that's about dread that literally dredges something up. Oh yes, yeah. I mean, what's been interesting, if if it's not too you know solipsistic to mention, what's been interesting on this traveling around with this book is how many World War II veterans have wanted to talk and and tell stories about what they saw at sea. And um, the book has, toward the end, uh, a U-boat that surfaces. It's filled with gases and finally surfaces some years after it was sunk. Uh, and, and this was a very common circumstance around the world. It just wasn't usually talked about very much. But when you research it, uh, I think my favorite account was these Norwegian fishermen were off of, in a fjord off the coast of Norway. And all of a sudden, uh, a, an old German U-boat surfaces. And just, I guess, the physical manifestation of a deja vu or... Or, or something, I don't know. It was like a, 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 a physical seance of some sort that the ocean was experiencing. A ghost. It's a, a ghost. It's a literal, actual ghost. I like the idea suddenly of, of the ocean experiencing a, a deja vu. Maybe Pablo Neruda could have captured that somehow. <laughs> you know, um, uh, one of the things I think that's interesting, too, is when we're reading this book, we're immersed both in the immediacy of the narrative, but we also, every, with every sentence, were reminded of the distance because this is a letter that's being written many years later. Yeah, and, and 67. Yeah, so, so talk about creating that sense of both immediacy and distance, and, well, and tell me why you chose that, such that's, a distance. That's, that's, again, I mean, you're, you're really touching on things that are 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 very familiar but hard to articulate. So for me as a writer, and again, I can only speak for myself, um, constructing the, the, the exact right narrative distance is important. Now that can be for various reasons. Uh, the Bird Artist was set in 1911. It didn't mean that the characters in that book weren't struggling with psychological conundrums. It's just that I did not want to impose contemporary psychologizing on their lives or have them do that with each other. So um, with the book Devotion, which was a novella that came out a couple years ago, that was set in the 1980s, I believe it was, and it was strange for me to be in such a modern time. Uh, so with this book, it's written in in the '60s. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band comes in at the end, but almost as an afterthought. It just happens to be the time he. I, I wanted people to realize how long he'd been living with this, uh, and it ha didn't have much to do with the guilt of his actions, as much as the guilt of not telling his daughter the more intimate guilt. You know, um, you just used a word that caught my attention, telling, and that brings to mind the sense of story that you have, which I think is very, very unique. And uh, it, it's something that 
when again as we read this uh we read you know his his telling of it but you're the storyteller and we have a lot of different kind of stories in this novel so talk about your sense of story uh in terms of the the novel as a, experienced as a whole, is to sit down and read it, you know, in a day or two, and, and the different pieces of stories, how they are, come together. When you do, you experience the little stories in this novel uh, in a different manner than the reader does. I'm not sure uh, because I don't usually talk to readers about that kind of thing. But what I do experience is a sense, and I'll I'll. I'll refer to something Chekhov said. He said, you know, when you go to the opera, uh, you have to realize at a certain point that all those people in the background actually have lives. They're just never going to be able to come front and center and operatically exhibit those emotions, right? Those are the people I like to think about. <laughs> you know? So... Uh, the stories within stories, yes. I might refer to the fact that my, uh, a lot of my 20s and into my 30s was spent uh, in very remote areas uh, working with recondite languages such as Inuit. I speak Inuit, uh, a dialect of Inuit in the central Canadian area called Kwakmuriut. And I translated a lot of stories, um, a lot of stories. And so when you're with people who think narratively but don't have a written language, you are very aware of, of, of the uh, poetic compression of, of stories. These are their archive. These are their encyclopedia. They have to serve many purposes. They have to entertain. These stories have to impart information they have to uh, contain uh, all sorts of, if you will, magical qualities, and they have to uh, they they have to create uh, all those uh, in equal measure. Um, on the other hand, I seldom experienced stories there that had beginning, middles, and ends. They sometimes had three middles, four endings like a strange Stravinsky or even John Cage composition. So I'm enamored of those things. I think that's why I like the novelist Max Frisch so much, the Austrian novelist, especially his book Montauk. It, it, it moves back and forth in time. It incorporates an autobiographical tone and then an objective tone. I think many things are possible with a novel. One of the things that um, interest me. You you had mentioned that you collected folk tales. Yes, and I I think that uh, there's something of the feel of a in a sense of a folk tale almost about this novel that this is what happens to love in war. Mm -hmm. Well. The first novel I ever wrote, uh, which, of course, never saw the light of day in Shundav, was really a recapitulation of a folktale that I had heard. And um, I think that 
you may be referring to a certain sense of atmosphere or tone, but certainly I have tried very, very hard to, uh, well, this is a pun in terms of this book, but jettison every folkloric, convenient notion of what a folklore, folkloric book would be. Um, one of the things I try to do is have at least one very superstitious person in each of my novels, mm-hmm. which is a kind of umbilical connection to an older way of thinking. Interesting. That's that's my folklore stuff <laughs> coming out. Well, you know, you refer... One of the things I think is true about this novel, it's very interesting because it's extremely hard-headed and very noir in that sense. But... You used this word earlier, and I think it's true. There's a sense of the uncanny about it, and I don't know exactly why I feel that way. I think it's because um, as we're traveling through the novel, we sense so much emotion that we're not seeing on the surface. Yes, and of course, the term surface has so many... uh, <laughs> evocations here, especially in it? this novel, yeah. Because I mean, uh, U-boats break the surface. People's temperaments break the surface. Any kind of serenity is uh, agitated, broken, violated throughout this whole book. But I, that well, that's true. I think also. Maybe this is just because you like your characters. Or I, I, there's a kind of a sense of a, a sweetness. In this I hope novel. so. I think uh, it, it's bitter lovely. sweetness is is. Um, you have to. Ch- I like characters who have really recognized what their real natures are, and just simply sort of celebrate them through dialogue. You know, if somebody feels they're sort of look at the world in a rather melancholy or bittersweet way, then embrace that. And uh, although I like characters who can't help do that anyway, that there's no affectation to that. Mm. Um, So it's a kind of naturalism, I suppose. Do you eavesdrop? Of course. (laughs) I like to eavesdrop in on even my own thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) I I like Anna Freud's statement that all love is unrequited, even self-love. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's nice um when the place that this takes place in the the landscape i think is very interesting um and you evoke it in an interesting manner um do you have photographs of i mean when you're working on a on a novel do you have photographs of where it is or does this all live in your mind on occasion, my daughter's a photographer. She uses black and white film right now. Uh, and um, so I've been increasingly aware of photographs because of her. I'm a very, very uh, big admirer, uh, endless admirer of the Nova Scotia photographs of Robert Frank. Um, and so photographs do play a role I wrote a whole novel, The Haunting of Al, about f- photography, although it was spirit photography, charlatanism in photography. Um, 
for me, writing is a lot about displacement of the imagination. I'll go to Nova Scotia, listen in on conversations, get a cadence of somebody's voice right, go, go to graveyards, look at church bulletins. Just this has gone on for so many decades. But I'll never write in Nova Scotia. I'll go back to my house in Vermont and then, if you will, channel that. So there's a displacement of the imagination that works in that regard. Um, and so uh, the vivid immediacy of landscape for me is uh, somewhere along, it, it, it's a way of making a duet out of the seemingly rival claims of your dream life and your waking experience. And if they can combine rather than conflict, uh, that works well with me in terms of description, in terms of creating an atmosphere in fiction. Well, you know, uh, uh, with historical novels, and, and this isn't, doesn't have the feel essentially of a historical novel to me, although it has, it has its historical setting. Yeah. And, and also with science fiction novels, there's a... a something that the writers do that I call world building, which is if you're not writing about something that's happening right this instant, you've got to create that world for, yeah. the, for the reader. Sure. And I yeah. think what's interesting about this novel is on reflection that you create <clears throat> the world in which it's set, but equally you're working at creating an emotional world. And I don't think I've ever seen a writer build a world like that. And this is the world uh, of Wyatt Hillier. And I think that's a very interesting uh, uh, decision on your part. Well, you know, I, I think that Wyatt is somebody that um, his struggle is was always just to come to some knowledge of himself through experience. But then finally, what good is that if you can't apply it somehow? And I think finally in this letter, I'd like to think this is how all his self-knowledge is being put to good use. In language. In language, but also in this imploration, in this, in this, in this asking that not that he be forgiven or anything to do with closure or redemption, but um, be given a chance to have a even provisional reunion with his daughter. You know, when you said the word imploration, I thought, well, that's the opposite of exploration. And rather than exploring your external world, an imploration would be exploring yourself. <laughs> yeah. you know, I don't think that's the case. That's not what you meant, nor is that what the word means, but I think that's kind of what happens here. Uh, it may not even be a word. It's not uh, a word. What I mean now. is imploring in the sense of pleading, mm -hmm. no, that's praying, a kind of prayer, uh, not in the pejorative sense. Mm -hmm. Now, um, people who know me know that I use words in the wrong way all the time. Mm -hmm. What I meant was, oh, I know what you meant. Yeah, is the the idea of petitioning mm -hmm. someone, asking them. Just give me a little chance and see what happens. And that's what, I guess, 
every novelist does with the first paragraph of their work. It's what you do with a reader, hmm. you, you know, basically. Uh, that sounds a little bit either gratuitous or melodramatic, but it is true. Well, you've got to get the reader to read. I mean, yeah. <laughs> one way or the other, <laughs> that's that's. I that's usually begin my novels, uh, you know, just sort of saying what the main thing is that happened and then spending the rest of the novel describing how it happened. It's These aren't police procedurals, you know. No. This murder happened at this time in this place. Now I'm going to tell you everything that led up to it. Hmm. That's a, a narrative strategy I feel very comfortable with. Well, I guess they're, they're emotional procedurals. That's very nice. <laughs> I've been speaking with Howard Norman. His new novel is What Has Left the Daughter. Thank you for joining me, Howard. Oh, great. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.